If you have a Bible with you, can you turn in it to the book of John? John chapter 9. We're going to read one of the most remarkable miracles and also humorous stories in the Gospels. John chapter 9. For those of you who have a Bible with you, it's going to come up on the screen. So why, so why bother turning to it if you've got a Bible with you? Here's why. Because it's a big book. And because it's a big book, you can sometimes feel like, um, how can I put it? You must not know where to start with it, and so you read it less and less and less. And so the more you just get used to handling the book and finding different, different passages in there, the more confident you grow, which should hopefully help you just getting into the Word, which is such an important thing. Uh, I'm trying to think the best place for me to stand while we read this is probably not here. Probably blocking out a big chunk. Those of you need to read it, so I'll just move back. Okay. One scene, don't worry. Okay, here we go. We're going to just read the whole of John chapter 9. As he, as he that's Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? He was born blind. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sin. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbours and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is him. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Now we are open. He answered, Then a man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Salaam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are the religious leaders. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud in my eyes, I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man, what are you sad about since he opened your eyes? He said... He's a prophet. The Jews didn't believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Now his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know this man's a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, well what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already. You wouldn't listen. Why, why do you want to hear it again? 
Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> they reviled him, saying, You're his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know God's spoken to Moses. That's for this man. We don't know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. If anyone's a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. Would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard they'd cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, you've seen him, and it's he who's speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Well, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. So we've got an amazing story here. Um, it's a true story. It's not written as a myth or a legend. You can even tell from the human interaction of the story, this is entirely real. Um, nothing is hidden or glossed over, there's sarcasm in there, there's suspicion, there's misunderstanding, there's funny snide little comments, you couldn't make this up if you tried. Okay? It's a historical narrative about a man who was born physically blind, who was healed by Jesus, um, and so then you can see again. However, I want to use this story today as a parable, talking about how we receive spiritual eyesight, or how we get saved, or how we can come to know eternal life. Now, I feel like I can do this for two reasons from this story. Reason number one, John the Apostle was one of those guys who loved symbolism, and he tends to write on two levels. He writes on a historical narrative level, and in that way, this is what happened, and it's true. But he's also often, he's, he's using real historical incidents to speak about spiritual truths underlying it. That's very much his style. But secondly, if we go to the end of that passage that I just read, even Jesus begins to refer to the blindness as spiritual blindness. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? See, they understood Jesus was starting to talk about spiritual blindness. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And it's this whole idea of saying, well, I, I see, I, I understand God. Um, when actually you don't, that is spiritual blindness. So I think that from this story, I can legitimately use um, the story as a parable for salvation. So that's really where we're going to go today. I want to pull out a few things just to provoke your thoughts. Firstly, the man was born blind. The Bible teaches we are born spiritually blind. And the Bible teaches that. What does it mean? It means that we are born not knowing or understanding God. Now, on the one hand, the Bible says that through creation around us, all of us know there's a God who is infinitely powerful and divine. We know that just from creation, but we suppress it because we don't want to face up to it. So in one sense, we get the fact that there is a God. But in another sense, we are spiritually blind in the sense that we, we can't connect with him, we just don't know how to. Uh, we, when we pray, if we're told how to pray, and even then we end up just saying words, or we're told to say, so we don't know what to say. My kids love to say, I don't know what to pray. Why? Because we're born without the knowledge of being able to relate to God. We are born separated, estranged from God, spiritually blind. And so in many ways, this man in the story is a spiritual picture of what you and me are like. All of us. This is how we are born. Whether you're from a religious background or not, whether your dad's a vicar or not, it's the same for all of us. The Bible is very, very clear that we are born in this condition. The Theologians call it original sin. 
Okay? And it, it brings blindness. So we don't, we don't get God. And we have people groping about to try and work him out. And so some people, they will just try and create an idea. Oh, I just this is God. And they've really just, they just developed some ideas. Or they buy into a certain religion that says this is what God is like. Oh, I'll have that. But that is not having your eyes open. It's a very different dynamic. That's trying to pretend that you see when really you don't. And we don't want to, we don't want to do it. Why do that when actually you can see? It's a cheap imitation, isn't it? So it's a tragic situation that we're in and naturally irreversible. Naturally, you can't just work it out. Something's got to happen. Something extraordinary has to happen. Now notice this as well. The disciples do the natural thing. They want to find out who's to blame. They see the guys blind from birth. They think, that's out of order. Whose fault is it? That's people, isn't it? People, we don't know. Who knows whose fault it is? Um, and so they say, is it his fault? Did he do something in the womb? A bad thought? You know, what was his parents? His parents were really bad. And Jesus just really says, he says, that's not what this is about. Ultimately, this is about God's works being displayed. Now, this isn't to say that there weren't reasons why the man was blind, but Jesus said, ultimately, it's not about that. It's because God wants to do something. Now, like I said, there's reasons why we are born spiritually blind. You can go back to Adam and Eve, our own original sin, the things we... There's reasons for it, but ultimately, why is it? It's so that the works of God can be displayed, so that God can open our eyes. That's why. Why are we born spiritually blind? So God can perform a miracle at some point in our life, open our eyes, and then we can be like Lucy, Ashcan, and Johnny and say, do you know what? I can't believe I'm stood here. Yeah. Jesus has done it. So tragic as it is, born spiritually blind, what's God's purpose in it? God wants to do something. And maybe you're here tonight as someone and you say, you know what? Yeah, if I'm honest with you, I would put my hand up and say, yeah, I'm spiritually blind in the sense I've got a few ideas and thoughts, but I don't know God. I can't really join in with this thing and say, Jesus, I love you, Lord. I can't do that. I don't know. I've got some ideas or heard some things that sounded like they're quite plausible. I don't know him. Why am I in this condition? Ultimately, you're in that condition because God wants to display his work in you. God wants to open the eyes of your heart so you can say, ah, there it is. That's what it's about. Okay. Notice that there was quite an unconventional method of healing with this man. I don't know if you picked that up in the story. <laughs> it was pretty, uh, pretty unexpected for the man, I would imagine. He didn't see it coming, did he? <laughs> 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 But it's literal as well. I mean, there he is. I mean, imagine him. There he is. Blind, begging. Splat. That's really what, you know, that's really how it's written. There's no sense of just saying, mate, it's okay if I just, there's none of that. You know, it's going to make some mud. Put it on your eyes. How do you feel about it? The conversation doesn't happen. It's kind of, it's a bit stealth-like, isn't it? And I bet the guy just thought, what the heck? This happened to my wife. <laughs> and the other one, you know, it's like, that's not that <laughs> to be honest with you, it's really like you think, man, I like, I couldn't use some water. Hey, you know, you think it is it's highly, highly unconventional. Um, but there's a lesson in it, and the lesson is this, especially when you go to parabolic and you look at salvation, there's a massive lesson in it. Here's the lesson. The way your eyes get open is highly unconventional and surprising. You see, people get religion, alright? So people get the thing where we say, that if you do certain things, godly things, yeah, then God will open your eyes. It's kind of like a deal. You do some stuff, you do it, you do it enough, you go to church enough, you read your Bible enough, you do certain things, then God's heart will be won over. 
you know, and it'll open your eyes. People get that, why? Because it's basically worldly, that's how the world works, yeah? Tit for tat, I do this for you, you do this for me. That's a lot of the way people that approach religion, they approach God. I do a few more things, maybe I'll get some revelation. It doesn't happen like Or good work, I'll do good things. I'll give money to charity, I'll help some people out. And, you know, I'm sure then at some point I'll, I'll see, no, you're trying to earn something. You're trying to pay your way. doesn't work like that. And I tell, for some of you, I would love to beat this into your head for five hours because you've been brought up religiously. And you can't get out of your system. You're stuck in this thing that you think that if you just do this, then God will be moved in some way and will accept you. And it's a deception. Yeah. It is wrong. It is a cul-de-sac. Worse than it's worse than that, because the cul-de-sac is a dead end. It, 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 it does have a destination, and it's hell. Yeah. I tell you, this is not the way of salvation. But we get it, why? Because it's how the world works. I'll do this and then I'll get that. Well, don't And this is, the, this is how religion tends to work. This is how religion works. Do certain things, whether it's the Ten Commandments, or the Five Pillars of Islam, or the Sevenfold Path of Buddhism, or whatever it is. Do that and things should be okay. That is not the message of God's salvation. It's entirely different. And entirely unconventional. And uh, we will look at that. What it is, we will focus in on that for the concluding part of the message. I want to make a few other comments about the story. The man's eyes get opened and he's excited about Jesus. Straight away, he hits trouble with the religious people. I'm, I'm against the religious folk tonight, and you can tell this when you're coming through tonight, but you, this is really important. The religious people have the biggest problem with Jesus' miracles. Why? Here's why. Because when they meet this man, his eyes are open, there's something. The guy doesn't know the ropes, he hasn't got the lingo, he hasn't got the kudos or the status or the religious history, but man alive is he mad about Jesus. And what it does is it threatens immediately the religious people. Why? Because they've got the kudos, they've got the status, they've got the terminology, but they don't have the real passion for Jesus. So they, they get threatened by it. It's like, ah, quick, we've got to close this thing down. Because this guy's starting to shout up. There is genuine, raw excitement about God in this man. There's a fire in this man. It's not in us. We're actually more about ourselves and looking good and people thinking we're really religious. And the relig that's a religious spirit. It can even be a demonic thing. And it hates getting near, close to the Holy Spirit and the fire and life of God. And so you find there's mockery. You find there's accusation. You were born in utter sin. You find there's a real reaction. Not only so, you also find there's family tension. Because his parents are, are kind of hauled in. Right, you explain. And his parents are thinking, man, alive. on the one hand, they must be celebrating their son can see. On the other hand, they know if they actually say, well, yeah, it was Jesus and Jesus did it, they're going to be thrown out of the synagogue. And that, in those days, well, it would have been a terrible disgrace. And so they actually abdicate in that sense. And they, 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 they're cowardly. And they say, no, no, uh, ask him. Because they don't want to face that, you see. And I would imagine there would be tension there family-wise. And it can happen when you're a believer. You can experience that. You can experience backlash from religious people and tension in the family. Not always, but it happens. And I would say to you, sometimes you've just got to walk through it. You've got to walk, and you mustn't let it dampen your love and your passion for the Lord. These are very, very important things. And really, the, 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 sort of the, the culmination of the story is when the man just falls on his knees and worships Jesus. That's, that is where this thing is going. That's what this thing is about. Jesus getting the glory that he deserves because he does amazing and wonderful things.
But let's backtrack for a moment now and ask the question. So what is this unconventional way? How does Jesus open our eyes spiritually? How do we get to see and understand and know God? What is it? It's the message of the cross. That's what it is. It's the message of... It's much more gruesome than a bit of spit and dirt on the floor, actually. And it's much more unconventional that the Son of God had to die for you. That's the message of the cross. You think, what? Okay, that's the message of the cross. Son of God, I've heard it a hundred times before. What does it mean? I'm going to help you with what it means. I'm going to help you. I'm going to unpack some truth so you get it. What was going on there? We're going to look at some slides and just help you with some long words. Right? I'll take a long word and put it into layman's terms for you. Okay? Some of them you'll get, but some of the words are a little bit unusual. Firstly, substitution. How does the dictionary define substitution? Here we go. A person or thing acting or serving in place of another. Fact number one about the cross. When Jesus Christ was being crucified, he was serving in place of another. He was there. He shouldn't have been there. Why? It's a criminal's death. It's a sinner's death. It's a cursed death. He shouldn't have been there. Because he's the only man never to have sinned, never to have not let, let alone broken you know, social law. He never even broke God's law. Perfect to the uttermost. He shouldn't have been on the cross. It was all wrong. And he was serving in place of another. Who? You. That's where you belong. You belong there because you're a lawbreaker. Now you may be the most upright person that's ever lived. You might be getting offended thinking, how can you call me a lawbreaker? I'm saying you've broken God's law. You've broken God's law. Should we look at the Ten Commandments for a few minutes? We only have to get two or three and probably be convinced. Let look at one. Look at one. Let's look at one. Love the Lord your God with all that you are. Serve him only. See, the Bible says all things are made by him and for him. You were made for him. That's why you are here, for him. To know him and love and glorify him and enjoy him forever. That is why you are here, for his pleasure. Now, the beauty is, is that when we live that kind of life, it produces a pleasure and a satisfaction that is beyond words. So it's not, it's not doing good by a long way. By a long way. But ultimately, ultimately it's his pleasure. And what, what, what will please him on anything? What he wants your heart. He says, love me with all your heart. Put me first. Done it? You're not. You belong here. It's deeply offensive. Deeply, deeply offensive. To turn away from the infinite, glorious one who created you for himself. And here's the most insulting thing about it, you see. Because we're made as worshippers, we don't just say, oh no, I'm not going to worship God. We instinctively, intuitively worship something else. We either worship ourselves, or we worship another a boyfriend, girlfriend, parent, or a celebrity, or we worship, worship a sport, or we worship a car, or we worship and say, no, I'm going to turn away from you, the infinite, the glorious one, the one who I was made for, the only one who can satisfy my deepest needs, the creator, and I'm going to turn to the created. And it's completely insulting. It's like, it's like viewing a painting and being amazed by a painting and making no reference to the painting. No reference to the painter at all. What an amazing painting. Look at the colours. Look at the shades. Look at the texture. Isn't it glorious? Yeah, but go on. Who did it? I don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. You see, it's outrageous. <coughs> so Jesus is there in your place. We're going to look at some other terms. That's the bottom line you need to realise, though. He's serving you there. 
He's serving in your place on the cross. He doesn't deserve to be there, but he willingly goes there because some things need to happen. And he really doesn't want them to happen to you because they would result in your eternal death. And he wants to rescue you from it. Second, mediation. He's a mediator. A mediator is someone who gets two parties that are in host uh, hostile and against one another, and he draws them together. The mediator, figuratively speaking, can lay his hand on that one, lay his hand on that one, and say, come on, let's get this, get this, sort things out. Now, Jesus, being fully God and fully man, is able to fully represent God and fully represent man and bring about some reconciliation because naturally it is not there. We are, and God are at war. There is hostility going on in our heart before God, and there is wrath on God's part. Holy, holy and just wrath because of our sinfulness. And so Jesus comes as the mediator to bring us together, to lay hands on both. That's what he's doing on the cross. That's what he's doing there. How so? How does it work? Well, let's move on. It will become clear. Redemption. What is redemption? Well, the dictionary says this. To redeem is to buy back or to recover by expenditure of effort or payment. To buy back or recover. What's he doing? Well, the Bible also teaches this, that because of our sin, it's like we've, we've been lost. We've, we, we who are God's God, the Bible says the world and everything in it is God's. It's all his. Okay? Our kids love this. They say, what? This pencil? Yes. <laughs> we've gone for hours, you know. Everything. Everything's God's. And yet we go off as if we're our own. No, I'm going to do this. Okay? And as a result, God in his loving, passionate mercy says, I'm going to buy them back. Even though they would never come back willingly, and we want to just do their own thing, I love them, I'm going to buy them back. And so he sends a redeemer. A redeemer who, through expenditure of amazing, extraordinary effort, he bleeds for you, he dies for you, he fights for you. In his body, he takes in his body the punishment that you and I deserve. He does everything for us that he can be biased back to God. How does he do that on the cross? Let's look at the next one. It's a long word, I think, this one. Propitiation. What does that mean? Here's what it means. To propitiate is to appease the wrath of an offended party. God is very offended by you, though he loves you dearly. But he's very offended by you. And so Jesus on the cross appeases the wrath. How so? Here's how so. The Father pours his wrath out. The wrath he feels for your sin <coughs> onto Jesus. Jesus appeases the wrath of the Father by receiving the judgment, the wrath in his own body and soul. He experiences the, the wrath, the fury of God, the eternal fury of God in himself as he hangs on that cross. As a result, the wrath of God is appeased and satisfied. And God is able to say to sinful people that hide in Christ, come, come, there's no nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear, no more punishment to fear. The next one, expiation. Dictionary says to pay the penalty for wrongdoing. So there's a penalty that comes with sin. There's guilt. There's shame. There's judgment. What's going to happen about that? Jesus will experience that on the cross. He'll experience guilt. The Bible says he becomes sin. Thoroughly ruined. Shame. He's stripped naked. He's humiliated. The shame for our sin. Judgment. He experiences in his body the judgment for our sins. He is amazing. He is amazing. What? Two more. Ransom. I'm sure you know what this means. The payment demanded for the release of a prisoner. Bible says we are sold to sin. We are prisoners of sin. Sin rules. We are in the realm of sin. We are under the sin. So here's the thing, you see, people are tricky, right? So, so if I start talking about sin, sexual sin, yeah? Then I might say, so, you know, lust calls, lust beckons, and you just go like this, yeah? So I'm sitting here who doesn't struggle with lust, so no, that's not me, so I'm not under the rule of sin. 
You are under the rule of sin, it's just a different one. It's just a different one. It'll be something else. It'll be something else that you just can't say no to. That you can't resist. It may not be this one, but if it's not this one, it's that one. We're slaves. And we need, we need someone to pay ransom to buy us back. Jesus is our ransom. The final one, curse. Curse, the blessed one, the anointed one, the Christ. To become a curse here. The dictionary describes a curse as a sentence of excommunication. He is banished and excommunicated from fellowship with his father, the one who he loves dearly. He becomes a curse for us. Why? So we might enjoy the blessings that come through him. And it's extraordinary. This is the message of the cross, folks. And as you've probably understood by now, it leaves you without a leg to stand on in terms of self-confidence or self-righteousness, and it puts you entirely at the debt of Jesus Christ, a debt you can never pay off. Yeah. A debt you're not supposed to pay off. Mm. A, bet, a, a debt which if you try to pay it off, you'd find yourself in more debt. Because you'd be trying to be self-righteous, which is a sin. Okay? Yeah? So what are you called to do? You're called to receive it gladly, humbly. And you're called to let that sacrificial, unconditional, death defeat in love so break into your life that you love him back. Mm. you love him back. It's the message of the cross. And I want to highlight a few things and we're done on how people respond to the cross in different ways. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 1, but it was a short passage. First of verse 18. It says this. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So I was done speaking about the cross. Some of you are going, hallelujah, yeah, oh, come on, let's worship. Come on, get the guitars out. Yeah? Yeah? You should think, you should think this is the power of God. It's changed my life. Others you might be, might be thinking, leave it out. Come on, mate. Get back to the real world. Yeah, let's just feet on the ground. What are you on about? When does this thing finish? The Bible says this. Our response to the word of the cross reflects our condition. If you are finding what I'm saying to be the very power of God into your soul, you're being saved. If you're finding what I'm saying folly and nonsense, the Bible says you're perishing. That is very serious. And I don't say that to condemn in a kind of a that's the end of you sort of way. I say it to wake you up and say, please, consider your situation. Consider where you're at. Mm. And then on, verse 19. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will fall. What we see here, through the message of the cross, God's got an agenda. He deliberately wants to thwart worldly wisdom. He deliberately wants to completely, uh, he's got an agenda to deal with it. Why? The next passage teaches us. It says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For, here's the reason why. Since, in the wisdom of God, so it's all part of God's plan, the world did not know God through wisdom. There's the key sentence. The world, through its wisdom, didn't know God. Didn't help us in any way get to know God. It pleased God, through the folly of what we preach, the message of the cross, to save those who believe. So the world, all its development and understanding in technology and science, and all these things are fine. These discoveries are perfectly fine. It's all part of God's good creation. So totally behind discoveries. But in it all, we have completely missed God. And as a result of that, that kind of wisdom that just develops this secular framework, which <coughs> sidelines the creator, is doomed. God says, right, that whole worldly wisdom is under my judgment. I'm going to deal with it. And one of the ways I'm going to deal with it, I'm to, my, the, the way you're going to get saved is a message that, on the surface, looks like a foolish message. It's a man hanging on the cross. 
That's what's going on. Next, next part of the conversation. The Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But for those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, or Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Different cultures want different things. They demand different things. Jews say, no, we want some miracles to really see this is the right way. Greeks are saying, no, give us wisdom, philosophy, and ideas. God says, I'm not going to indulge your demands. Why not? Well, any of you ever seen Supernanny? <laughs> so what's happened in Supernanny? Okay, basically, here's the deal. You've got a family, and basically the kids are in charge. So you've got a three-year-old toddler in charge, rules the roost, you know, um, decides what to have for dinner, you know, decides when it's going to bed, decides what's, what's going to watch on television, and if anyone sort of challenges it, dangles from the window by one hand, I'm going to kill myself. Okay, fine, you know. And uh, bath for dinner. I mean, it's, that's the deal. What are we going to do? Super nanny. Okay. Now, Super nanny comes in in a red cape or whatever she wears. Now, here's the question. What, what does Super nanny do? In a nutshell, what does Super nanny do? She trains those parents that the children don't know what is best. They might shout and scream, they might cause a fuss, they might bang their head against the floor, but ultimately their demands must not be indulged because they don't know what's best. Jews demand science. Greeks demand wisdom. God says, cross. Why? We give you signs, it's only going to feed your corrupt desires. And you're going to think that you know best. And yeah, right, okay. I, okay, you satisfied my desires now, God. Fine. Don't bend. Okay, I will now follow you like you're doing in some kind of favor. Same for the wisdom. No, 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 that's not how it works. That is not how it works. God says, this is the deal. Why not? That makes perfect sense if we carry on reading. For the foolishness of God, if there were such a thing, is wiser than God knows best. And the weakness of God is stronger than God is able to do whatever he pleases. And it, it brings our pride down into the dust, which is what we need. Believe me, it's what we need. And you'll be told other things, you'll be told this whole you'll be told, no, no, pride's a good thing. And you know, build up your self-esteem and it's all about you, and it's it's your life, and it's all about you, and it's all a pack of lies. It's a pack of demonic lies. It is not all about you. It is not your life. That is wrong, okay? Your life is not a right, it's a gift. Life belongs to the life-giving, living God. Yeah? yeah? Every breath is a gift. Yeah. And it's not all about you. That is the, that is, that is the surefire way to uh, destructive hooliganism, nonsense, self-consumed trash, every other horrible word I can think of. I tell my kids, I teach my kids, so you've got, no, you know, so my kids screaming, nah, nah, why are you screaming? I don't know what that feel, nah, nah, and the other siblings don't, nah, nah, say, right, come up, please. We're going to talk. We're going to talk about this. You're acting like the whole world grows around you. It doesn't. You need to learn it. Then. But what does our country do? We teach our teenagers that it is. We create campaigns called It's Your Life. No, it's not. No, it's not. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Some, but not many in the church. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. It's deliberate. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Here's why. The final slide. This is what it's all about. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, whom God made our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. And here we get the pinnacle of human experience. Therefore, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in But everyone will boast in something, whether it's their background, whether it's their ability, whether it's their sexual prowess, whether it's how many pints they're able to drink. What everyone makes them boast in something, I tell you, the pinnacle of human experience is to be able to say this, Jesus is amazing. Yeah. He is my wisdom. He is my righteousness. He is my sanctification. He is my redemption. Everything I didn't have, every, in every way where I was so lacking before God and doomed to condemnation, Jesus has become for me. He's my propitiation. He's my expiation. He's become <coughs> my curse. He's my ransom. Everything, every way that I lacked, He has filled me up. That is what we're made for. That glorifies God. It shows Him to be the one who alone can provide these things. And it weans us off of ourselves, which is what we need more than anything. So we can rest and hide in Him and enjoy Him. This is what these three guys up here tonight were about, posted in Jesus. This is what the man in John 9 who was born blind was about. Posted in Jesus. Tell me who he is like a worship I want to ask where it is, what you're going to do. It's what you make. It's what you make. And if you're a believer, never let that be robbed from you. Never let that be compromised. Never buy into just the shape of the world and its nonsense, its spins. Question, question what you get told. Hold up against Scripture. Does it work? And if you've never known the Lord, may you never know the wonder of being able to boast in the Lord. Well, why, why not? Why not? He has done all of that for you. What more could he do to demonstrate his love? What more could he do to win your heart? What more? After the cross he rose again. He is alive. And he's going to come again for judgment. Now judgment is a good thing, not a bad thing. Judgment means putting the wrong things right. Okay? Every injustice will be put right. The vengeance of God will be displayed. Every rape be put right. Every, every perpetrator of every crime will be put right. So it's a good thing. The problem lies in this, that we're all perpetrators as well as victims. That's why we don't like it. But if we cling to Christ, if we come to the crucified one, if we come to the foot of the cross tonight, I tell you that judgment that awaits us, that wrath, that vengeance, as we cling to Christ, we recognise it all went on Him. We can receive full pardon and become among those who eagerly wait for the return of Christ, because we know that for us it means salvation. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. We don't follow up with Jesus after that. There's something wrong. With you. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take.